fresh out the oven, it's Cinema Bums. I'm Wade. And I'm Emmett. Cinema Bums is a podcast where we watch through every single movie in popular film franchises, one each week, to try and track how the storytelling in the series changes over time. Today we are starting our brand new miniseries, X23, where we are going to watch every single film in the longest running and least coherent cinematic universe, Fox's X-Men universe. Uh, we're going to fully spoil the film we're talking about today, but we will not spoil any future entries in the series. Today we are talking about X-Men. X-Men 2000. Uh, Emmett, let me ask you. I don't mean this in a shady way, but uh-huh. you you picked this miniseries. Uh-huh. You wanted to talk about the X-Men films. Yes. Um, so what is it about these films that made you want to spend the next 13 weeks of our life watching them um well these were my favorite like some of my favorite movies growing up mm-hmm. uh, and they were definitely my favorite superhero movies growing up specifically uh i w- started watching them at a pretty young age and and they have been with me from then until now uh, they keep they just keep making them <laughs> uh and they <laughs> are they are weird in a way that I think the other superhero movies, while they're exciting and sh- and like have outlandish things happen in them, they're not just plain weird the way that X Men are. I also think that as a young kid, the like the narrative of these kind of outsider superheroes, superheroes who are they're like really cool to them and to like the other mutants, but to you know, to the outside world, they're seen as a threat as opposed to like Superman Mm -hmm. or the Fantastic Four people who are more widely regarded as uh, like straight heroic. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that was just more like more rich territory. Yeah. Imagination wise. I remember you saying when we first started talking about doing this series that you felt there was some value in these movies that was underappreciated. I'm, Did I'm I say serious. that? Did I say yes, that? Yes, I remember okay. you saying that the okay. first time. I think there's also something to be said that in the future there will be not much reason for people to watch these movies. Hmm. Uh, I'm not saying they're not good. I just mean it's kind of a closed book now on the series. Uh, sure. So this movie that we're talking about today, X-Men, came out 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, the most recent entry, the 13th and final entry in this series, came out um, two months ago as we record this. came out this year, 2020. These films were previously produced by Fox all of these series and last year in 2019 the Disney Corporation bought Fox mm-hmm. and is now going to fold future entries with the X-Men into their Marvel Cinematic Universe and that's that's another thing that I liked about the X-Men as the Marvel Cinematic Universe started to develop is I liked that they were their own independent thing mm-hmm. and that each movie felt like it could really stand on its own especially after the original trilogy um and so they weren't connected to other things. You didn't have to, like, I like some of the movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but I hate the idea that I have to watch Thor and Thor 2 to understand Thor Ragnarok. Like, that bums me out. That they're, that you have to, like, have all this backstory, watch, like, Captain America to understand what's going on in Infinity War. It's really... So, like, the idea that you have a series that is completely self-isolated... And they're only under their own like flagship. It kind of, mm. I like that a little bit more. Uh, okay, so let me ask you, what was your first experience with the X Men? 
So the ex, my first experience was when the week that my little sister Mariah was born uh, in 2006 was the same week that X3 The Last Stand came out. And my cousin Charles was ferrying me back and forth between where my mom was in the hospital and like back at home where he was kind of like taking care of us. And on one of those road trips, he saw that X3 was in the theaters and he was an X-Men fan. So he was like, let's go watch this. I'd never seen any of the other ones. I had no idea what was going on, but I loved it. I was like, this is awesome. Who's the guy with the claws? I want to be him. I like styled my hair like that for a long, <laughs> that a makes a lot long of time. <laughs> it was clarifying some things for me. Yeah, um, for real. I, I was like always like trying to grow sideburns even into like early college was like really wish that I could do the Wolverine sideburn thing. So then I was like, okay, well, I got to know. I got to go back and watch the rest of them. So um, at that time, there were only two others. There was only X1 and X2 um, other than The Last Stand. And so I think Charles probably rented those for me or like got them for me on Netflix. And we watched them together. And then I was like, okay, this makes more sense. Um, And so that is, I don't specifically remember the first time I watched X, the first one, but I do Mm -hmm. remember like watching X3 in theaters and being blown away by it. And what was your first experience with the series? I think it was this movie. Mm -hmm. I have memories of how I felt about each of the first three movies. I don't have a specific memory of seeing of like when I saw this for the first time, but I think this was the first movie. I was a DC Comics kid growing up. I watched the DC movies. I mean, really, before this, there weren't Marvel movies. Right. Uh, but I watched all of the DC movies my mom had shown to me growing up. Uh, I would watch the DC cartoons. So I was much more familiar with those characters mm-hmm. than I was with any of the um, Marvel characters. I know my aunt was very into this movie. Uh, when I was growing up, my mom was very like aware, very concerned about what content I would watch, mm-hmm. which um, was a worry that she passed on to me. I remember as a kid being like very aware of the content in movies. Mm-hmm. I would like read reviews or uh, like read the ratings mm-hmm. or stuff to like try and find out what was in movies, which I think backfired in some ways because I would always be like, well, this movie has graphic beheadings. I can't watch that <laughs> um, as like a child. Uh-huh. I was six when this movie came out. Uh-huh. So I remembered that I was very excited for it and I wasn't allowed to watch it right when it came out. I definitely didn't see it in theaters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember specifically that it was like the bar scene that this movie like took place in like a crazy bar with like a fight club. Mm-hmm. Like that was one of the things I remember uh, mm-hmm. my family talking about as a reason I couldn't see it. But I did read the novelization. Oh, wow. I don't know if you remember this. I don't think it's a thing anymore. But it used to be that like every movie that was geared even a little bit towards kids would have like a junior novelization mm-hmm. 
which was like a hundred pages and had eight pages of color photos in the middle. I do, yeah. Um, and then they would also have an adult novelization. There would be two novelizations for each of these movies, and the adult one would be like three hundred or four hundred pages. It would be like a little airplane paperback. Mm-hmm. Um, and my aunt Maria had read the novelization. I think after seeing the movie uh-huh. and gave it to me. So then eventually I watched it. My parents had a rule where like if there was a book, I had to read the book before I could see the movie. Sure. Which is funny, and now as an adult looking at it, that this is a movie based on a comic, and my first introduction to it was the novel <laughs> explaining who the X-Men were. But I did, I read like the adult novelization for this, and then at some point saw it, I think like in the lead up to X2. Okay. Um, okay, so this movie that we're talking about today mm-hmm. uh, is called Just X-Men. It was written by David Hayter, who is most well-known for being the actor who plays Solid Snake in Metal Gear Solid and Smash Bros. Wait, (laughs) what? (laughs) Directed by Brian Singer, released on July 14th, 2000, Uh um, running a blessed one hour and 44 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. Made for a budget of seventy-five million. Okay. And the uh, the formula for all these budgets is that however much they spend to make a movie, they normally spend that equal amount to market it. Mm-hmm. So as a general rule of thumb, a movie has to make twice its budget in order to break even uh-huh. for the studio. Okay. So this would have had to make one hundred and fifty million. Yeah, it would have had to make yeah, one hundred and fifty million. million. Sorry, just to yeah. break even, it made three hundred million. Yeah. Yeah, so it was a hit. Uh, It was a pretty big hit that year. So Brian Singer, before this movie even came out, Uh and then again and again and again after this, has been accused of uh, sexual misconduct, Mm -hmm. um, specifically with underage men. Mm. He had a lawsuit uh, first in 1997, three years before this movie came out. Um, And then again in... 2014, 2017, and 2019. Right. This was a thing where like people knew back then. Like it was an open secret. Yeah. Decades before Me Too. Uh huh. Um, and then really just in 2019, when it all came to a head, is when Brian Singer like just left for Thanksgiving and never came back to Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh. Wow. Let's not forget that he was directing a. Best Picture nominated film in 2019, (laughs) 22 years after these first accusations. That's crazy. I know this is a complicated question, Mm -hmm. like, but I think it's good that we're dealing with this on the first movie we watch here. Yeah, yeah. Like, how do we handle looking back at this movie now, knowing like what its creator was allegedly doing at the time and continue to do for 20 years? What responsibility should the movie bear of that, if any? I mean, I think that's a really that's a really loaded and like broad question of like how do, how much can you separate the art from the artist? Yeah. How much can you separate like especially when it's the director of a film? Well, I have a tendency to say that you know it's good we shouldn't let these people make any more movies. We shouldn't let people make more money mm-hmm. and use their like market things with their name. Yeah, but it's also true that. Those movies exist, um, and they, those people are people are going to continue to watch those movies with or without knowledge of what's going on. Yeah, and so maybe 
having the knowledge of it and just holding like carrying on like holding on to that and carrying that with you while you watch it is uh i don't know it's 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 tricky because i really do love this movie um and yeah so i'm not sure yeah i mean i don't i think that was a very well-spoken answer i feel like that's there is no like hard and fast answer when it comes to this, like you said. Yeah, I think it is down to each person. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it just was something that was weighing a little heavier on me this watch, especially because I just noticed that there are like so many young men in this movie. That's true. I think this is kind of, and I'm not alleging misconduct here, mm-hmm. but um, when I watch a Zack Snyder movie, it's really hard not to notice that like every bit role is played by a man who is the age and look of Zack Snyder. Like everyone looks just like him and, uh, watching like this, I just couldn't help but notice that all these small roles were being played by these like young heartthrobby actors. Mm -hmm. Uh, and knowing that that's like where most of his misconduct came from of him, like promising, Mm. roles in exchange for sexual favors and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I just thought that that weighed a little heavy. I mean, I'm sure like watching this, like I didn't know about that when I watched this as a kid. Mm -hmm. I also thought that like in 20 years when we watch Avengers Endgame, probably like half of those people will be like, oh, they went on to do this terrible thing. Sure. You know, or even like, oh, something crazy was happening then. And we didn't, yeah, we didn't know about it. No idea about. But yeah, that's that's not the last time we'll talk about Brian Singer. But I just thought from the off, yeah, not to be a downer, but I feel like that is like an elephant in the room about this movie. For sure. And like the three movies in the series after this, he still gets to go on and direct. Yeah. Um, Okay, well, moving right along. We like to ask a few questions about uh, each of these movies we watch. And let me put the first one to you. X-Men, 2000, flop or bop? Well, uh, all of that being said about Brian Singer, I think he made a bop of a movie in this mm. one. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, this is, a, this is a fun movie. I think a very clear movie and, like, feels very, like, very human. Like, the stakes are very real in this movie to me. And so it is, mm-hmm. it's like a superhero movie before we get all of the superhero movie tropes. It does have a lot of the superhero movie tropes in it, but it is not so like, it feels like almost innocent of a lot of the superhero movie tropes that will come along later mm-hmm. that I think to me, like make later movies in the X-Men uh, installments. And also a lot of the Marvel cinematic movies to me just feel like big, but empty. And this one feels like it's about a small enough thing that you can wrap your head around it. Yeah. And it is, you know, I think it's it's enjoyable right up to the end. Yeah. How about you? Flop or bop? Um, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. I think that on this, on this two-point scale, <laughs> where it's either a flop or a bop, I think for me... Personally, it's a flop. Okay. Um, I felt for the first two acts that it was a bop. Mm-hmm. But like, I just, and when I say that, I thought that like there was more good than the bad. Mm-hmm. But then I would say after the last half an hour, I just felt that there was more bad than good. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are a lot of really smart narrative decisions. 
Mm-hmm. Like a lot of decisions, if you're just staring at like the whole concept of the X-Men, mm-hmm. which, and it's kind of hard to think about this now, but like they had never been on screen. Well, they'd been, you know, they'd been on the TV screen. Yeah. But, but not on a movie, not in live yeah, action. Yeah. And looking at that and being like, okay, what do I do with this? Yeah. With um, years and years and decades of history and all these different characters and scenarios. Mm -hmm. I think like the way they anchor us with these two lead characters, these two audience ciphers of Rogue and Wolverine Mm -hmm. is so smart. Mm -hmm. I think it really clearly uh, shows the way the world works and the history of it Mm -hmm. in such smart ways. At the same time, I think that it's hard watching this movie now to separate it from the decade of bad cinema we get because of it, the decisions in this that lead to us having to go through that with everything else. Um, like, I feel like this movie is the reason why we don't get anything comics accurate until like 2012. I feel like this is why everything feels like it has to be like a little more grounded. Mm-hmm. That's something the grounded thing I think works for this movie. The like straying from the comet accurate thing I think dates it now more than it would if they had just gone for it. Hmm. But it's hard for me to separate it from that and to separate it kind of from the sins of Brian Singer. Mm-hmm. Um and I just did not think the third act worked. Okay. Like I think the third act just goes for too long into punching and kicking, and the punching and kicking does not look good now. That is true. Uh, the The fights do are definitely dated now. Um, it, so it's interesting you bring up about the like changing from the comics so much uh-huh. because my question to you would then be, where would you start otherwise? Because the X Men, as we know, have been running since. 1963 september 1963 x-men one and has been continuously running since then um so it had been wow. running for 37 years at the point that uh, this wow. movie came out it has now been running for 57 years that's wild. Um, it's crazy to think about so these comics were created by jack kirby and stan lee jack kirby mm. was the first artist and co-writer and stan lee was the writer these these comics go through so many different iterations and storylines and like uh, resets on timelines and flag and like who's running the team and which characters are dead character death and resurrection happens all the time. The interesting, another interesting fact is the main character of this movie is Wolverine, right? Would you agree? Or at least one of the two main characters. I would agree. I'm glad that you said that because I had had that thought too. I know that we had talked before going into this that in both of our memories, it felt like Rogue could be the main character. Yeah. And I was surprised by how little she's really in it for how much I remember this being her movie. I do think, you know, it's like her and Wolverine yeah, and like it's about their relationship in a lot of ways. Like a I lot agree. of the, like a lot of the movie is, but I do think he's the main character. Wolverine didn't show up in Marvel Comics. His first issue appeared in 1974. Wow, and the the first comic that he showed up in was the Incredible Hulk, uh, number 181 or 180 and 181. He shows up as, as an enemy of the Hulk, so he's not even in the X Men huh. run originally. And I do not have here which when he eventually joins the X-Men. 
but he is a much later i mean that's already 11 years later before he even exists as a character he quickly became like one of everybody's favorite characters but he is not a part of the original team and he is that's kind of what this movie is about too it's like how does how wolverine joined the Mm x-men is like kind i mean not exactly but it is like the origin story of how wolverine became a part of that yeah, I do think of Wolverine as like the X-Men. Um right. he's kind of like the breakout character and he was the one who was like one of the Avengers. Mm-hmm. He was the one who would always team up with Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Like he was the one who was most out and in the rest of the Marvel universe. Mm-hmm. From what I remember from like the comics and games I read as a kid, I do wonder how much of that was happening prior to like this movie. A lot of that was. Okay. So he is he has showed up across Spider-Man comics, uh, the Avengers, Fantastic Four. He has a thing with uh, the thing from. He has Fantas- a thing with. The, he has the a thing? thing with the thing, like a competitive thing with uh, the thing. A competitive thing. Yeah, a competitive thing. You know, he's from Can- Canada. Mm-hmm. He's a Canadian, and there's they're always like cracking jokes about him being a Canadian, and I'm sure that they get into fist fights. I mean, pretty much if you can picture a big strong character from any (laughs) of the marvel comics wolverine at some point had a beef with that guy yeah like wolverine at some point was like going up against that that guy because they pissed him off somehow (laughs) but i just want to get into the cultural context also on like what other movies came out that year yeah let's hear it the highest grossing films of 2000 we already said that x-men got almost 300 million the highest grossing in order of highest grossing from uh one to ten Mission Impossible 2. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Gladiator, which also won Best Picture and Best Actor in the Academy Awards. Wow. Uh, Castaway. What Women Want, starring Mel Gibson. <laughs> what could <laughs> women want more than Mel Gibson? Right. Talk about uh, not aging well. Dinosaur, um, which was also the most expensive movie of that year. And, perf- I mean, obviously performed pretty well because it comes in number five. Wow. Um how the Grinch Stole Christmas, Meet the Parents, The Perfect Storm, um, X-Men at number nine, and What Lies Beneath um, at number ten. Hmm. Uh, and the most critically acclaimed movies of, oh, that, wow. of that same year mm-hmm. are Gladiator, like we said, Traffic, uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, American Psycho, Almost Famous, and Aaron Brockovich. It was interesting to me hearing that, like, how many of those movies were, like, for adults and how many of them were just, like, where the pitch is, like, an actor does an adult thing. You know, like, that is truly wild to me. I mean, Gladiator was number two. That's, like, a film rated R. Yeah. And it's, like, now, like, if an R-rated film is in the top ten, that's an insane thing. Really? Yeah, because movies are for, like, families and Hmm. teenagers and children um yeah all of those except for like how the grinch stole christmas and dinosaur, and dinosaur. basically i Which guess are the two of these i remember seeing in theaters <laughs> distinctly both I, terrified me yeah so that is really interesting to me i feel like that feels so different from what like a top selling movies today would be mm-hmm. uh i noticed a couple similarities to other movies okay. of the late 90s and early thousands in all this right. that i would just like to mention now while we're here okay um, the DNA opening credits, okay, which was such a thing. It was. It's so weird. The thing where we like go into the bloodstream, yeah. as like the music is playing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. 
I think Fight Club is the earliest popular example of this. I don't know if there are earlier examples. Okay. That obviously came out in 99, which was the year before this. Yeah. Um, I wrote Politics So Big in 2000. Yeah. Also yeah. thinking about um, Star Wars Episode One, which came out a year oh, before this. Oh, yeah. Which, is... which I know that Brian Singer went to the set of to like learn how to use visual effects. Oh, well. Um, both of these movies feature like long scenes of the senate talking about things yes although i think it's handled a lot better in this movie (laughs) i have a little quote from Uh stan lee about why like when he was creating the x-men like you know he'd created uh, already like thor and the avengers and the uh fantastic four and spider-man and iron man he'd already done all of those and he said this is a quote from 2004 He said, I couldn't have everybody bitten by a radioactive spider or exposed to a gamma ray explosion, and I took the cowardly way out. I said to myself, why don't I just say they're mutants? They were born that way. (laughs) In your research, did you find anything talking about it, its origin being like explicitly a civil rights metaphor? Being from the 60s. They haven't said... They I think Stanley's also Jewish, so I know there's a lot of stuff in there. They, I mean, they talk about how there's... It's not explicitly... Or nowhere that I find that they talked about it being explicitly about that, but it is said that, you know, they explore themes of racism, anti-Semitism, and especially homophobia, uh, especially in the sense that... Especially like, in these movies. And certainly. especially in these movies, uh, it's in the sense that the mutants like a lot of the mutants are trying to hide that they're mutants from other people. It's interesting. They said they fought for justice and equality for mutants um, is like how they described the original X team is that they Mm -hmm. did that. They've said that it wasn't initially meant to be this way, but later on people have compared uh, Charles Xavier and Magneto to kind of being corollaries to MLK and Malcolm X in the sense that, uh, one is is preaching for love and acceptance into the dominant culture, and the other is talking about war against. Um, and I think in this movie, he even says, "By any means necessary." Magneto does. Although I don't think those corollaries work exactly in terms of like the racial history in the United States, but they are interesting to think about and explore. Not like a one for one. Yeah. We obviously also know that those leaders flip-flopped uh, towards the end of their lives. For but sure. yeah, I think that is a big thing. It's obviously made textual in this film right. with the by any means necessary. But the idea of like these two old friends who had both who both want the exact same thing mm-hmm. and just that one of them says like they use violence against us, we can use violence against them. Right. And the other one says like we have to be the better person, we have to be above it. Yeah, I mean, I think we see that dynamic again and again in superhero movies after this, too. But I do think it works really well. As we'll talk about a little later, I know that it was one of the keys to unlocking, like, what they were going to do with this movie. Okay, that's interesting. Um, Yeah, I also wanted to say the other, like, 90s thing Mm -hmm. that I noticed on this watch was the body horror, uh, which is a big thing. And, like, the Cronenberg movies and, like, the fly being mainstream. Uh Like, people were really into the body horror. And you've got it here with the Senator Kelly, like, shifting through the bars and then, like, melting and turning into a puddle of water. Yeah. Um, Oh, yeah, that is... That part is really gruesome. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, it freaked me out as a kid. The part that I remember most from when I was a kid is like when he comes back on the beach and he's like starts off as like a fish man and then turns into human and he's uh-huh. naked, like walk naked and veiny walking through the beach. I yeah. remember that leaving an imprint as a child for sure. So yeah. I want to talk about um, about the history of the superhero movie. Yes, yes. While we're it. here. I just want to say this right now that I'm uh-huh. not trying to mansplain the next thing I say because uh-huh. I'm sure this will be common knowledge to some people. Okay. But in talking about this movie, a lot of people came to me and said like, oh, cool, you're talking about DC movies first. So as a result of some of the stuff we're going to talk about, the Marvel Comics characters got like split up in film. Right. But the X-Men are and always have been a part of the Marvel Universe. Mm-hmm. Like in the comics, like the X Men and Spider Man and the Avengers are all in the same world. Yes, they interact together. They've like all been together from the start. Mm-hmm. So I just want to say that up front. This is um, one of the very first Marvel movies. Okay. So on screen, it's mostly like the domain of DC in terms of just like the big screen, right? Because um, you got Superman and Batman. Yeah, Superman the movie comes out in 1978, uh-huh. greenlit mostly off of the success of Star Wars, but that becomes like a big hit and is uh like a seminal classic too, like critically acclaimed. Mm-hmm. That was the first superhero thing I remember. My mm-hmm. mom went through like a classics phase where she was going to show me all of the classics and we watched mm-hmm. Superman the movie. Then we get Batman 89 um and all of the batman movies mm-hmm. which are like hugely popular right uh and at this time there was really like no marvel comic stuff on film mm-hmm. there was a little on the silver screen um in the 70s there were these incredible hulk tv show um, and tv movies huh. that my mom loved growing up there were some for doctor strange too but in terms of like movies there wasn't really anything going on and then in 1997 uh there's batman and robin which is like regarded as having killed the superhero movie by being so bad. Uh, <laughs> I want to say I watched it recently for the first time in my life, having been told my entire life that it was like the worst movie ever made. Uh-huh. And I think you guys are crazy. But it is true that there was like a huge critical and public backlash to that movie. That okay. had been kind of brewing. A lot of this is tied into the Batman series because. Um, Batman 89 is a huge hit. Batman Returns, people say, is too dark for their kids, for a movie primarily aimed at kids. Uh Um, That's a conversation that was happening at the same time with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as well. So then in Batman and Robin in 1997, uh, if you don't know, it's the one with George Clooney. It's the one where he uses the Bat credit card and where everyone has nipples on their Bat suit. And it starts with like several a close-up montage of... uh, of the butts of the Batman. Uh, that's a movie that is like explicitly homoerotic uh-huh. as an interesting parallel to this movie, which is very much like a queer narrative, but uh-huh. isn't but really isn't... visually homoerotic at all. No. I wouldn't even say visually erotic in much of a way for as many, as many like hot young movie stars wearing tight leather as it has. Yeah. There is like, uh, I guess a commendable restraint. So that movie comes out in 1997, and everyone always talks about how it killed the superhero movie. Mm -hmm. And then this movie comes out three years later. So I think at times I could be dismissive of this. Like, well, it it killed it for, what, three years? But it is true that it killed that type of superhero movie. Because you have kind of that, like, huge 
neon excess of Batman and Robin. Right. And superhero movies do come back three years later, but when they come back, the first scene is the Holocaust. <sighs> so I think that that, it does yeah. like kill that like grandeur of the superhero movie for a long time, where like now superheroes have to be like a little more adult, mm-hmm. a little bit aged up. They have to deal with real world issues in right. a more explicit way. I would be remiss not to note too, Blade, which came out in 1998. Okay, that obviously is like an R-rated horror movie, uh-huh. but that is a Marvel movie. It's like the first Marvel movie. It's also like the first black superhero movie a lot of times people say like x-men is the start of the superhero movie re-emergence it's the start Uh of the marvel movies or they'll say like black panther is the first movie ever made about a black superhero Uh um all of that stuff belongs to blade okay uh which comes out two years before this shows i think that there is like an audience for adults watching like older takes on superhero stuff um, so this comes out in 2000 and then ushers in like Spider-Man and all the sequels and all that stuff. We'll talk about more as the series goes on mm-hmm. in terms of like what's going on at the same time. So that is, I think, part of why the tone of this movie mm-hmm. is what it is. Yeah, it does not feel like a kid's movie. It, yeah, I would agree. It feels like it. It's like it could be a movie for teens. But, like, looking back on it, I'm like, why did I like that movie that much when I was a kid? <laughs> like, it's, it's like, pretty dark, and it's also pretty, like, muted in some ways. And, like, which I like about it now in comparison to a lot of, like, the later stage uh, MCU stuff, and especially in comparison to the later stage X-Men stuff. But it is, like, toned down. It is, like, grittier than... I think I think of it being like uh, uh, if I was viewing it just through the lens of history, I would be like, yeah, that was, you know, it's X-Men. It's not that, you know, not that dark, not that gritty. But this one does feel like more lived in, I guess. This is all a result of the comics industry, too. So the 90s were a really tough time for Marvel Comics specifically. In 1992... Uh, seven of their like most famous creators very publicly mm-hmm. left the company and went and formed Image. Oh yeah, which is kind of like the third pillar. Mm-hmm. There's like Marvel, DC, and Image is mm-hmm. like very much the third one there. Uh, and their big thing is that like all of the properties there are creator owned. Okay, so it's not just like you know like anyone can uh, write a Batman. Thing okay, it's right, not like right. Bob Kane and Bill Finger and their estates have to like forever sign off on what happens to Batman. Okay. Um, and there were just like seven, like really high profile creators led by Todd McFarlane who were just like sick of not really uh, and Rob Liefeld not like having uh, ownership over their work. Wow, who left and that caused like a further big crash in all of the Marvel sales. Yeah. Uh, in 1996, the then parent company for Marvel files for bankruptcy. So they were like about to shut down. Damn. Um, and that's when Marvel starts selling up its movie rights for any possible cash. Damn. We've all been here when you start looking at the things in your room a little bit differently. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're like, how much would this get at GameStop? Yeah. How much would this get on eBay? That was Marvel in the lead up to this movie. They're looking around the room, putting out feelers like, you guys want the X-Men? You guys mm-hmm. want Spider-Man? Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is how 
obviously Columbia Pictures and Sony get the rights to Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Paramount gets the rights to The Incredible Hulk. Fox gets the rights to X-Men. And then all of that stuff results in these splintered universes. And, you know, I think it is worth saying, too, that in those DC movies, it wasn't like they were connected. Like, uh-huh. the DC movies who had total creative control also didn't adapt them to be, like, this is Superman, he lives in the same world as Batman. Right, right. Which is what the comics for both companies always have been. Right. They were trying to make this movie for a really long time. Okay. How long? <laughs> well, uh, in 1990, uh-huh. Orion Pictures was working on it. Uh, was working on a version okay. of an X-Men movie. It was going to be directed by Catherine Bigelow. Okay. Uh, it was going to be produced by James Cameron. <laughs> it was going to have Angela Bassett as Storm. Oh, my God. And Bob Hoskins as Wolverine. Who the hell is Bob Hoskins? Uh, he's the guy from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He's oh, Mario yeah, yeah, yeah. from Super Mario Bros. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty silly, but he is kind of the body type for Wolverine. That is a thing, too, that when this movie came out, there was a little bit of controversy with Wolverine. Because Wolverine in the comics is, a like, a very short guy. Yeah, he is, like, a short, like, stocky yeah. guy. And Hugh Jackman is not He's, that. like, stocky. He's a little bit bigger. He's very hairy. And he's very short. And yeah. that's, like, the thing of his character is that yeah. he's supposed to be, like, a feral Wolverine. So they were trying to make that version of the movie. And it just didn't get off the ground in uh-huh. time because the rights were reverted back um, in 1992. Okay. And then in 1994, uh, Laura Schuler Donner, mm-hmm. who is a very famous producer, she's the wife of Richard Donner, who directed all of the original Superman movies. Oh, okay. Also directed Lethal Weapon. Mm-hmm. She has produced a lot of stuff. She takes control of the rights. Okay. Uh, at this point, everyone you can imagine who is big at this time, every, every writer you can think of and uh-huh. every director you can think of is like courted... Or does a pass on it. Um, And every single actor you can imagine is considered for Wolverine and Storm, who going back to 1990 are considered like the two leads of this movie. It's like the two things you got to get right are Wolverine and Storm, which is interesting because in this movie, Storm doesn't speak until 48 minutes in. Jesus, it's true. It's a, She really gets done dirty in this movie. Are those like the two leads of the comics? Well, they. she did definitely... Storm led the X-Men for a while. She was a team leader on one of the runs of the X-Men for a long time. And she is a major character um, throughout that. In fact, the interesting tidbit, Storm... In one of the runs, she is Queen of Wakanda and the wife of the Black Panther, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, but she is she is like a fairly major character and eventually is one of the main people leading the team. But as we say, not in this movie hardly at all, even though we have Halle Berry playing her finally. And she's, I mean, I feel like Halle Berry would be a great choice to play her if there was anything to, to play in this movie. She feels a little shackled by that accent, too. Yeah, that is a little strange. I would say, though, that I feel like we get about an equal amount of all of, like, the X-Men who aren't Professor X. Like, yeah. I would say we actually get... She obviously talks less in the first... I mean, she doesn't talk in the first half. Yeah. But I would say in terms of screen time, it feels pretty equal with Cyclops, Storm, and Jean Grey. Mm, that's They're fair. all kind of not really there and also there in the background for a lot of it. That's true. Yeah. Oh, um, so just some of the ones that I wanted to mention. Okay. Joss Whedon 
did a pass on the script oh, damn. Um, that was thrown out for being too like light and funny and irreverent. Uh, good. <laughs> Michael Chabon. Uh-huh. Chabon, I don't know how you say it, yeah. but the fiction writer. Okay. Uh, novelist did a pass on it too. Uh-huh. Brett Ratner, uh-huh. who ends up being the director for three, okay. was assigned to it. Robert Rodriguez and Paul W.S. Anderson. Uh-huh. Uh, Paul W.S. Anderson, who is off of... Um, Mortal Kombat and okay. Resident Evil was kind of like the video game movie guy. Okay. All of them were attached to it for some time or they were trying to get those guys. Eventually, they bring on Brian Singer, uh-huh. who is coming off the success of The Usual Suspects. Uh-huh. Have you seen that? I have. Did you like it? I did. Yeah, I, I liked it too. And that was like a cult hit at the time, very critically acclaimed this is like an interesting early example of them bringing on an indie director to do a superhero movie, huh. which becomes the norm after. But at this point, it was like even someone like more like Catherine Bigelow, like an action director is who you would get. Uh, okay, like, I uh, see. Like, or Paul W.S. Anderson, like somebody who has done that genre of films is who you would get for it. Right. Whereas like now the status quo is you do like one or two critically acclaimed indie movies and then you get to do a marvel movie right like straight away and that is what this guy was doing too but what was definitely like not the norm at that point well they're growing marvel movies on a tree at this point so like they're just (laughs) handing them out to anybody who asks i don't know why we haven't asked Uh, right (laughs) so he comes on in 1996 Mm -hmm. it doesn't like get going right away that's obviously four years before the movie Mm -hmm. comes out so he goes off to shoot another movie which is called apt hotel which is headed by Ian McKellen. Oh, okay. Which is where he meets McKellen. They're working on trying to get the script right. Mm-hmm. The famous X-Men writer Chris Claremont uh-huh. in 1997 hears that the movie has stalled and sends them like a manifesto that is like his list of like what makes the X-Men unique, uh-huh. what makes them different from the other teams, what uh-huh. the core tenants of the team are and what they stand for. Uh-huh. And that, like, gets production back on track. And then in 1998, they turn in the draft that becomes the basis for this movie. And, like, they have said that the key to unlocking it was focusing on the Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X dynamic. Okay. Gotcha. uh, Of Professor X and Magneto. In the original script, that draft, that got cut from the movie for budget concerns, Beast, Nightcrawler, Pyro... What? And The Danger Room. Oh, come on. Uh, The Danger Room is in uh, X-Men lore, like, basically a training simulator room. It's a room where they go and, like, fight a bunch of people, and then it's revealed that it's, like, all a safe sim inside their house. Right. But that was also in a lot of the drafts. Like, tons of the drafts were just, like, all about the Danger Room. People were so excited by that concept. the Danger Room is so cool. It is one of the big X-Men things alongside Sentinels. Yeah. That is, like, one of the things that people really know about X-Men that doesn't come into the movies for a long time. David Hayter Mm -hmm. got the script credit for his draft. There had been, as I mentioned, like, 20-plus drafts of this script going around. Um, Brian Singer and the producer, Tom DeSanto, got story credit for it. Some of the more recent drafts were by Ed Solomon and by Christopher McQuarrie, Mm -hmm. who uh, at that point had written The Usual Suspects, goes on to write and direct the latter-day Mission Impossible movies. Okay. Basically anything 
his job now is like making good movies for Tom Cruise. Um, so okay. like anything in the last ten years that has been excellent mm-hmm. that Tom Cruise was also in okay. is like all thanks to Christopher McQuarrie. Okay, both of those guys turned down having their name. They said like, "Do you want screenplay credit?" So uh-huh. it would have been like Christopher McQuarrie and Ed Solomon yeah, and yeah. Um, David Hayter, and they both turned it down. Hayter has said publicly mm-hmm. that the movie is based on 55% of his script. Wow. Which, if that's what he's saying, yeah, uh, rumors have suggested that it is much, 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 much less. Okay. Um, the one report that I found said that the draft is mostly McQuarrie's. Really? Okay. Yeah, that makes it to the final stage. Hmm. Um, there's no way of us knowing at that point. But sure. Brian Singer had one man in his mind to play mm-hmm. Wolverine, and it was Russell Crowe. Who had just who that same year was winning the busy winning the Oscar for Gladiator, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. So Russell Crowe said, uh, "Hey, I don't think it's right for me, but you should check out my friend. His name's Hugh Jackman. I think you'll like him." Singer said, "No way in hell, I'm not going to cast an unknown to play Wolverine." Right. So he turned him down, and he cast uh, Dugray Scott, who was busy being in. Uh, the aforementioned highest-grossing movie of the year, Mission Impossible 2, as uh-huh. the bad guy. So he had some scheduling conflicts with Mission Impossible 2, and also in the middle of this, uh, right as they're like shooting, gets mm-hmm. in a motorcycle accident. Oh, jeez. Um, doesn't die, oh. but just like can't do the movie. Right. So then, oh, that not even then do we get to Hugh Jackman. <laughs> then they say, please, Glenn Danzig lead singer of the punk rock band Danzig, will you come in and play Wolverine? And he said, sorry, I'm on tour. Then three weeks into filming, they bring on Hugh Jackman. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I know. Everyone at home, look up what Glenn Danzig looks like. And then imagine him, which again is like not entirely far off from what Wolverine looks like in the comics. Well, true, because he's not so much. He's also not a romantic lead in the comics yeah i mean it's he is like he is having an affair with gene gray through a lot of the comics Uh uh-huh but i think like scott's the pretty boy like scott is the one who you're supposed to think like cyclops is the one who's like hot those other roles also all went through like so many iterations of cast members angela bassett even now 10 years later was still the first pick for storm wow but was too expensive for the movie Natalie Portman turned down Rogue, as did a lot of other actresses at the time. The filming was supposed to start in mid-1999, okay. like in the summer, and then it got pushed back to the very end of the year. At the same time as the release date of the film got pushed up, because this movie was supposed to come out Christmas 2000, uh-huh. and then because of Steven Spielberg's Minority Report. Uh-huh. Changing its release date. This movie got moved to July. They just, like, telescoped it in. Yeah, yeah. The filming got pushed way back, and the release date got pushed way forward. Damn. So they made this movie in, like, about nine months. Good lord. Which is crazy looking that at it. That is crazy. I yeah. mean, a lot of it holds up decently. There's, yeah. The, I mean, there's no, like, limit to stuff that doesn't, but a lot mm. of it looks pretty good for 2000. Yeah, for when sure. When you think about those other movies we mentioned... When you think about like The Matrix and Star Wars Episode One the year before mm-hmm. being the two other benchmarks of like CGI. For sure. I think some of this is to Singer's credit that he wanted the film to be like a little more practical, 
Uh-huh. I know specifically I read that um, he didn't want there to be any licensed music in it because huh. he didn't want to date it. He wanted it to feel like that's, a timeless movie. That's pretty smart because it does, like, there's nothing looking at it necessarily where you're like, oh, that's definitely. I think the fashion. Yeah, the fashion is a little. But beyond that, yeah. Uh, so this part I'm just going to read verbatim. During production, Singer would allegedly arrive late and experience mood swings and explosive tantrums. At the time, Singer claimed to be taking medication for back pain. Cast and crew members found Singer's drug use to be, quote, problematic. <laughs> Kevin Feige, the film's associate producer, uh-huh. was flown on set to ensure that Singer was kept in line. Singer was also accused of giving small roles to younger actors and minors in exchange for sex. Jesus. End quote. So a turbulent process being made. Kevin Feige is the guy who does all the MCU films. He's like the guy who the works his way to them? the top. Yeah. Okay. He's like the man who handles everything for those. Wow. And okay. was like an associate producer wow. running around and trying to keep Brian Singer's drug use in track. On wow. This he's, film. The, he's the one holding this guy's hair while he pukes in the toilet. I guess that's the way you uh, get to the top of the game. Right. And what's crazy is that like this was going on back then and then in twenty nineteen this is the same thing with Bohemian Rhapsody, where he's like showing up late, he's on drugs, uh-huh. he's having like all these allegations against him and like twenty nineteen. Yeah, still for that long he was still getting these gigs on these high profile movies. I mean I'm sure part of it is because of like how successful this movie is. Yeah. But it sounds like this is one of the cases where the product is not necessarily indicative of the process they went through For to sure. make it. Yeah. Certainly on the directorial side. Rebecca Ramjan Stamos, mm-hmm. who plays Mystique, oh. had 110 silicon pieces glued to her body on top of an entirely opaque paint. She basically stood there naked. They painted her entire body and then glued on 110 pieces to her body it said it took over eight hours a day good God. every single day she filmed um they also filmed this movie in canada in the middle of the winter so uh jesus. she talks about being like naked in the toronto winter jesus uh a direct quote from her i had almost no contact with the rest of the cast it was like i was making a different movie from everyone else it was hell <laughs> Damn! Quote. Did she come back to do the next two? Yeah, she does she do is, the next. She two. has the mystique for the next two. Uh huh. Wow. Um, you know, like I don't know who else had this, um, but I certainly was like, as a kid, I was like, wow, that's the most beautiful woman ever. It does not matter that she is blue and has scales. <laughs> um, <laughs> she's the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. Um, that is not uh, but maybe maybe that is not surprising to me (laughs) maybe that that is exclusive to me uh this movie was generally well liked at the time it came out Uh it wasn't like acclaimed but it was generally well liked Uh there was a lot of excitement for the sequel like most people who liked it were like the sequel is probably going to get better and that Uh seemed to be also like the people who disliked it were like it had to do a lot of busy work but i think the sequel will be good I noticed at the end that they are, like, prepping the sequel pretty hard. And and then I just wanted to read a quote from Roger Ebert's review for the Chicago Sun-Times that I really enjoyed. All right. He said, I started out liking this movie, 
while waiting for something really interesting to happen. When nothing did, I still didn't dislike it. I assume the X-Men will further develop their personalities if there is a sequel, and maybe find time to get involved in a story. No doubt fans of the comics will understand subtle illusions and fine points of their behavior. They should linger in the lobby after each screening to answer discussions. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Uh, Which I thought was pretty funny. And, like, uh, I would say generally pretty close to where I feel about it. Like, I don't dislike this movie, Mm -hmm. but I think that there's not as much there as there should be for it to, like, really sing, you know? Okay. I think we're also just, like, spoiled by the marvel movie or like the marvel cinematic movies Mm -hmm. because they throw everything at it and it's like there's so many things going on yeah and there's like so much story happening that when we get a superhero movie that is the when you go back and watch a superhero movie that is not that it feels like oh where's the juice yeah there really is like such total escalation because it's even now easy to forget that it was like such a bold move in 2014 for Marvel to have enough trust in its audience to be like, they'll get the guardians of the galaxy to be like, it's a walking Uh tree. It's a talking raccoon. It's in space. It's not like the other things, but like they'll get it. We don't need to change everything about it. We can do it how it is. And like the audience will follow us. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, so I think that now because we've had like so long of the filmmakers trusting the audience to get the source material as it is mm-hmm. and not changing it for them, um, that then going back, it's easier to be a little harsher on it. Yeah. Then maybe, you know, like if in 2000 we had Guardians of the Galaxy, would people have reacted to it the same way? I don't know. You would have um, had Vin Diesel in a tree suit <laughs> playing Groot. <laughs> we like to ask the question, Who's the protagonist um, and what do they want? And that kind of helps us get a good key into like what the overall plot is and how the storytelling is in this movie, how clear the storytelling is. That's a big part of why we're doing this podcast in general is to examine the clarity of storytelling in the individual iterations throughout the series. Um, And I think the question of who's the protagonist, what do they want, how do they go about getting it is the most important thing in terms of clarity of story. I have a take on this. Okay. I think that the protagonist is Wolverine. Okay. Which we agreed to earlier. Mm -hmm. And I think that what he wants is to take care of Rogue. Oh, okay. I think that he has like kind of a shockingly small amount of agency Uh for a main character. Because we also, we meet Rogue first. Right. We only meet Wolverine because he runs into Rogue. Right. It's really unclear what Wolverine wants for most of this. Sure. Because he doesn't know up front about his history. Right. Which becomes his driving force at the end. Mm-hmm. He doesn't seem to be, like, unhappy with his life as it is at the beginning. Sure. Rogue is, like, freaked out by it. But we don't hear that Wolverine is, like, weirded out by anything. Mm-hmm. So I think that his role in this movie is directly tied to rogue sure and i think that also like that's why he has permission at the end once he has kind of gotten to someplace bigger to go off and do something else Hmm. is like all tied into that last scene between him and rogue where he kind of knows that she's safe yeah that's really interesting i was i was thinking about it because at the beginning i have this note that says this is going to be a classic a classic reluctant father figure story Uh uh-huh but really he he takes to that role 
pretty quickly. He like cares pretty deeply about her pretty pretty early on. He's like worried about her. He's like as soon as he wakes up in the mansion after they like have the interaction with Sabretooth early on and the X-Men rescue him um when he wakes up in the mansion like the number one thing after he's like is over his own freak out is like where she at um what have you done with rogue and he keeps coming back to it he goes after her to the train station he feels like it's his responsibility so i feel like my initial thought that this was going to be one of those you know like a dr grant reluctant father narrative is not right you know what do you think about that yeah i agree for sure um I think that 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 part where he like wakes up and asks for, I think all of that is tied into why the movie is about their relationship specifically. Mm-hmm. I also think about like the train scene, mm-hmm. which I think is really good between the two of them, where he's he as someone who is like very against organizations. Right. There's also kind of an interesting thing about him as like a centrist, uh-huh. which they get into for a moment here, where yeah. he's like you guys are just going to kill yourselves in your war. And then storm is like, well, we have a side. Yeah. Like we have picked a side. We're not just running in the middle. Uh-huh. Um, there's that, which is interesting going on. But I think that like his primary focus seems to be on rogue and taking care of her. Yeah. I think the movie is also really willing to dig into relationships that are a little uncomfortable or just that we don't see depicted as much. Uh-huh. Um, I think Something that struck me watching it this time was like the relationship between Jean Grey and Professor X. Uh huh. Oh yeah. Just as kind of like Wolverine makes that weird comment about them, mm-hmm. where Professor X is like, "I I teach Jean Grey," and he's like, "I bet you do." And then uh-huh. there's that moment when he wakes up, when uh, Professor X wakes up with uh-huh. Jean Grey, and he's like, "I knew I'd be okay. You have you to take care of me." Yeah. That's, I believe, a holdover from the early comics hmm. where Professor X has a major crush on his student, Jean Grey, and yeah. doesn't want to reveal it to her for several re- different reasons. Probably yeah. at least one of those being that he is her professor. That is a, that is like an interesting thing. She And like Scott is not very secure in that relationship. Cyclops does not feel no. like they are not just like a couple in that they are sleeping together, they are literally, they share a room in their yeah. quarters. At So they are like, what should feel like a steady, like strong couple, mm-hmm. but it never feels that way from any of the interaction there. He's like very much possessive of her, but she doesn't ever, we never really see her even reciprocate to Scott other than that she is like tentative about flirting with Wolverine because... So there's that dynamic. There's also like Wolverine as a father figure for Mm -hmm. Rogue. But then we also see at the end that she has kind of like a crush on him. Mm -hmm. Professor X and Magneto's like uh, friendship turned rivalry. Yeah. So I think that this movie is like really interested in at least setting up Mm -hmm. those like strange relationships. I don't know how much it delves into them, like into really exploring them, but it's happy to put them on screen. Yeah. It's even interesting in that thing where like it starts with like the, the Wolverine and Cyclops relationship starts as directly confrontational. Yeah. He calls Cyclops a dick 
And I wish I think that James Marsden does a really good job in the role, uh-huh. and I think the dynamic is juicy. Yeah, I wish that we saw Cyclops not as a dick because he is like the leader of the team for most of the X Men runs. Yeah, and he is much more of kind of like like I think his characterization is much closer to a Captain America. He's kind of like yes, he's like a like a model student. Like, yeah, that's true. Kind of, and I I actually read a quote when I was doing this that Marzen said he was like really inspired by Boy Scouts, which huh. I think is a good thing for Cyclops. But I'm not sure how much that reads. Oh no, that totally reads to me. <laughs> and if you don't think that the kind of person who would make it to Eagle Scout would be a total dick to a person like Wolverine, okay, that's fair. That's then fair. you, I think you're wrong. <laughs> One of the strongest things going for this movie, uh-huh. and something that I took away from it like a lot watching it this time mm-hmm. is just that like the whole thing is a gigantic queer metaphor. Yes. Um, obviously that's what Brian Singer as uh self-described bisexual man uh-huh. was like his first connection mm-hmm. to the piece. Ian McKellen, also a gay man, uh-huh. which was his connection to the piece. Um, so it makes sense that that's what they're going for. But I think that is like all over this movie I mean, especially, I think, in terms of, like, the queer family dynamics, like, that you're, like, making a family out of the people around you, that Mm -hmm. you're okay with finding these, like, roles that are different from the nuclear family, Mm -hmm. but are still, like, the people that you live with. Like, the fact that all these people live in a house together with all of their kind. Yeah. The fact of like those dynamics that we were getting into, which are like kind of strange. I think that all of that ties into this metaphor, which is like fundamental throughout the film. So to get into that a little bit more to, to get into like kind of the catalyzing incidents in this film, I would say it's probably Robert Kelly, the Senator um, who comes out with this list of names um, of mutants who are living among us. Um, and he's trying to incite a moral panic over the mutants. Um, they know so that in this world, humans, some humans have evolved a mutant gene that gives them can give them all kinds of different powers. Um, obviously, we see that all across the X Men. But there are it's important to note there are tons and tons of people who are just living in the world as mutants. Uh, it's not really clear how many of those people know there are other people like them. It's not really clear like how much communication there is between other groups of mutants besides Charles Xavier's students and uh, Magneto's Brotherhood of Mutants. And also Magneto's Brotherhood of Mutants seems to be just him and three other mutants. <laughs> so that's, uh, I mean, that's a little strange. Yeah, let's, uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. Let's count them off. You've got Magneto. Uh-huh. Who is great in this? Ab- Ian McKellen, yeah, slays in this film. His it is voice, incredible. It's, it's perfect. This red, velvety, puffy shirt yes. they gave him uh-huh. was great, and and the gray sweater with like the weird military things on the shoulders are really cool too. It's like not military, but it kind of is reminiscent of it. It's very cool. Mm-hmm. Then you've got Sabretooth. Sabretooth, whose thing is like being big, big and very hard to kill. Yes, yes, he gets stabbed like a lot, like of times. nine times through his body by Wolverine, and yeah. still makes it. Uh, and the... zapped by zapped by uh, Cyclops at least a oh, couple yeah. times. At the end, there's like a little news clip 
that's talking about um, one of the aides that was killed by Sabretooth, uh-huh. but they say that he was mauled by a bear. Yeah, he's got these nasty fingernails that look like bear claws. Yeah. Um, and then we've got, what, Toad? Toad, played by Ray Park, who also played Darth Maul, uh, who also just this year had an alleged sex scandal. So, uh, I mean, that's just going to be all over these old movies that we talk right. about. Who apparently cannot say a line. <laughs> He has maybe two lines in the whole movie. He has three lines as Darth Maul, and they give them all to Peter Serafinowicz because he can't even say three lines. And then in this, there are so many times, and instead, it's like even instead of saying lines, because you can tell that there are like big action moments where he should say a one line. Yeah, yeah. And instead yeah. of that, he like does little dances or like makes a face. Or yeah, like... or like sticks his tongue out or something. Yeah, it's strange. Yeah, very strange. And then you have Mystique. Incredible. Love I, it. But she does she also doesn't like talk very much in this movie. Yeah, I think the Mystique uh Magneto dynamic is another like part of this queer dynamic. Yeah. Also, just like the idea of Mystique, the idea of her turning into anyone. Yeah, is inherently like yeah. has some interesting connotations because she she pre- predominantly changes into men in this movie. I would say this movie has a Mystique problem. In that, in like the last half, uh-huh. I was like, everyone's mystique. Like when someone would do something, I would be like, you can't trust them. They're probably mystique. Yeah. For every single character. Oh, So it's good to know that that's here in this series from the beginning. Yeah. Because that's definitely something that stays in this that, series. Yeah, that does happen um, later on. There's a similar thing in Mission Impossible where they can like make masks of people's faces. Oh, uh-huh. So then they just like, there are all the times where a character will do something in Mission Impossible and then take off their face and it's really another character. Oh, uh, wow. Uh, which is the exact same thing. But that was like, I would say, an issue for me in this movie. Um, Robert Kelly is a senator. He is um, he is anti-mutant. He's come out with a list of mutants who are living amongst us, and he is trying to pass a bill that is going to make the the mutants register them, like make the mutants come forward and be registered. And Magneto, of course, um, very against this bill, but so is Xavier. They both see this as an infringement on mutant rights. Mm. Uh, they see Magneto sees this as leading towards genocide. And we should talk about the first scene of the movie in regards to this mm. because Magneto himself is a survivor of the Holocaust. And it is made frequent. I mean, it's made reference to a couple different times. But the opening scene of this movie is, I think, maybe like the the most like gut wrenching scene in the, of the whole movie um, is the scene where young Magneto is torn away from his mother at the entrance to a concentration camp in Poland. And as he's being pulled away, he, his mutant ability comes out for the first time and he pulls this giant metal gate into basically a pretzel before a German soldier smacks him in the head with a rifle. Uh, it is a brutal scene to open the movie with. I, I when I watched it this time, I mean when I watched it as a kid, I didn't have anywhere near as much, you know, like Holocaust history awareness. But this time watching it, it was like pretty like difficult to watch. I think it sets the tone in a really weird place at the beginning of the movie. It's like a really dark scene and then you just cut away from it. Did it feel flippant for you? Would the cut from that to like the rogue makeout scene? Not necessarily. 
but it is strange. It is just like a tonally hard thing to open with and then go somewhere so completely different. A hard sell, but I think in the like in the first ten minutes of this movie, you have really clearly laid out like the two X Men metaphors. Like right. that one of them is that it's a metaphor for minorities. Mm-hmm. And then you have that it's a metaphor for puberty, right? Which is the other big well, X Men metaphor yeah. that this is kind of like a high school, and that it's kind of all these like tantrums and explosions of power are right. normally like from hitting puberty, from these first mm-hmm. like big moments of not knowing how to handle your emotions and handle your body, and all of those things are like exemplified by the X Men. We get that in the scene where Rogue has what she says is her first kiss with um, this boy, yeah. And- some southern state, I don't know. I believe she's from Mississippi. Talk, talk about another actress who's kind of shackled by the accent here. I think yeah. Anna Paquin is really held back by that. I also just like a funny thing from this scene. She doesn't know where Niagara Falls is. Because when she's pointing on the map, <laughs> she's like, we're going to go to Niagara Falls. And she's pointing at North Dakota. <laughs> also, not long after the scene, we get the scene of like the bar, which uh-huh. is in Canada. A yeah. lot of this movie is... The whole movie was filmed in Canada. A lot of this mm-hmm. movie is very Canadian yeah. in feel, I would say. And there mm. is that thing of like being like, can one of the people come and defeat this guy? Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I think in that and just like all the different ways that it shows how misunderstood mm-hmm. the X-Men are, just like mutants are mm-hmm. by the rest of the public, how there is kind of like this lack of leaders and a lack of an older generation Mm -hmm. I think is really clear. I also think that it like so pitch perfectly gets the power fantasy of revenge in this Hmm. that like the power fantasy is not killing your oppressor. It is making your oppressor become you. Yeah. Which I think is like so profound in this mm. that like the worst thing they could do mm-hmm. to these people who are like voting to oppose them and live in fear of them mm-hmm. is just to like make them live in the world they created as yeah. them. Make them live like they do. Yeah, and Magneto doesn't know at the end of the movie that that the plan that he's about to enact would kill everybody. Yeah. He really does. He firmly believes that it's just gonna make them all like him and he says even to the senator he says welcome to our side brother or something like that when yeah. when he's changed when he does the first mutation change on uh, senator kelly and he says you don't have to be afraid of me not anymore because yeah. he's a mutant now he wouldn't yeah. hurt a mutant yeah i was interested in how professor x felt would have felt about the plan if it was not that everyone was going to die like if it was that all of the world leaders would become mutants mm-hmm because we don't, I mean, we know he doesn't trust Magneto, but most of the reaction we get is to once he figures out that everyone's going to die. I also well, was, I think I think the movie skirts that question. I think like it, it may very well be intentional that they. I think it also skirts the question of where Professor X stands on the Mutant Registration Act. He obviously cares about it deeply. Mm-hmm. He's there watching it, but like, is he for it? Because Magneto is against it? Because he says some things that, like, sound like he could be. He's clearly not gung-ho about it. Right. Well, he says, he's, I think Charles says it's, or Eric says it's going to end, like, in, he thinks it's going to end in genocide. He thinks it's going to end with people being branded with some sort of government number and locked in camps. Mm -hmm. And Charles says, 
humanity has evolved since then. And Magneto says yes into us. Yeah, I think the two scenes between those leaders that bookend the movie are really powerful. Yeah. And like some of the best writing in this movie, for sure. Absolutely. I'm not holding this movie accountable for the movies that come after it, Mm -hmm. but it is like such a trope that the most powerful character has to get like taken out of the playing field in a way that's just Uh, frustrating. Like, because Professor X could solve that third act if he was there, so they like have to take him out. Right. Which, at least in this, is like lampshaded into being part of the villain's plan, Mm -hmm. is like stated as. Like, Mystique knows that he could solve it, so they purposefully do get rid of him. But it's like, you don't always have to take Superman out of the team movie. You don't always have to take Captain Marvel out. Right. Just because they're so much more powerful than everyone else doesn't mean you can't write something for them to do that's not they get sidelined for the entire third act so everyone else can save it on a human level. The superhero movie Uh can mean... A movie, like, adapted from a superhero comic, a movie featuring superheroes. Right. There is also, like, a genre of movie. Right. That is superhero movie. Right. That is what this movie is. Uh And is kind of what a lot of movies we got were until about 2014, 2015. A lot of just movies, movies? A lot of movies adapted from comics. Like, this movie has a ton of the tropes of that. And even sets the framework for some of them. Right. Like, that there's always a device that's on the rooftop of a thing that's going to hurt innocent people. Yep. That the heroes have to stop. Yep. That the team always has to learn how to work together. Uh That a superhero always has to fight a superhero that has the same exact powers as them. Not, like, learn how to do any other powers. Right. That the most powerful character gets taken off the table. Uh-huh. Like, there are all these things that we see time and time again, which are, like, superhero movie as a genre. Which goes back to, I think, when Dark Knight came out, everyone was like, oh, this was so good. What does it mean? It means that audiences want dark and gritty movies. It means that all right. movies have to be dark and grounded and gritty. Yeah. Where I think that, like the lesson they should have taken and they do eventually take Uh is that like audiences want to see their superheroes in different genres. Like Uh, Dark Knight is a crime thriller. Right. Featuring Batman. Right. And I think that is what like is the thing that ensures the Marvel Studios film success and longevity eventually is when they're like, oh, we're going to have space fantasies. We're going to have rom-coms. Right. We're going to have whatever Thor Ragnarok is. Yeah, we're going to have comedies. We're going to have political thrillers. Yeah. Like, we're going to put these characters inside of other genres, Uh and that's what, like, keeps it fresh. And I think that this movie, which, again, is, like, very much, like, like the starting point of a lot of these things, mm -hmm. is just, like, through and through sticks to the genre. Even in, like, the first two acts where you're kind of, like, clearly, like, a smaller scale version of those things. But then when you get to the third act, it's like, okay, well, now we got to have half an hour of punching because it's a superhero movie. Right. It does have a lot of punching at the end. (laughs) It does have a lot of very slow, very bad punching and weird acrobatics to get to the punching. How do you feel about Hugh Jackman in this? This is his first major film role. This is the third film he's been in, but the first like major motion picture. I like him. I think something that gets ignored about Hugh Jackman is that he's a good actor. Yeah. And I think the X-Men movies are partially to blame for that. But I think, I mean, he's an incredible actor. And he was a stage actor, like an incredible Broadway stage actor before 
he was uh, in this movie even like he's not taking it so seriously that it's that it's like boring he's not pretending he's in an indie film Mm. like he knows he's in a superhero Uh movie and he's having fun with it but it still feels grounded and his relationship with rogue feels real and i think the the one part of it that i don't like is at the very end when he like wakes up and uh has like that scene with gene gray at the end i think that's a (laughs) little forced Um, but i think that's also kind of the writing yeah, I actually think that his warm energy smooths over a lot of the rough edges of that character. Mm-hmm. I think on the page, and if you listen to what he's saying, particularly in those very like macho back and forth yeah. with Jean Grey, like if you listen to that, you're like, oh, this dude's a creep. Like, yeah. this dude is a jerk. But I think that he just has such a warm energy that it's smoothing over a lot of that stuff mm-hmm. and making it go down easier. I do really like him in here. Uh, I think we do see a little bit of his ballet training throughout it. Yeah. And I agree. I think that he is, I, it's not a hot take to say that he's a good actor, yeah. but I think that like, he's a great actor as Wolverine. Uh-huh. And then, so they're like, okay, let's give him 10 Wolverine movies. <laughs> yeah. And then like, eventually he's like, oh, I can do something else too. I can also be in musicals. And then they're like, oh, oh my gosh, let's give him eight musicals. <laughs> And then I feel like just this year with uh, Bad Education, so one of my good. favorite films of the year, I think he gives like a career high performance. And I hope that now people are like, oh, he can act as these dramatic characters. Let's yeah. give him all of these. It feels like he has to keep showing us his skills. Yeah, for real. And then like finally people are like, oh my gosh, yes. I really I really hope that the, like all of the, like, the bodybuilding for uh, X-Men didn't like didn't shorten his lifespan considerably (laughs) because i want to see this guy i want to see this guy like acting in movies for the next 30 years you know like i want to see him as a craggly old guy i i think also i would be remiss if we didn't mention one of my favorite movies australia starring him and nicole kidman directed (laughs) by the artur director baz lerman okay for those counting at home that is this week's reference of australia please spot where you can find it next week okay uh any other cast members you want to talk about i know we've already talked about i want to talk about halle berry oh yeah i want to talk talk about about the fact that that why did you get halle berry if you weren't gonna give her any damn lines halle berry who the year after this 2001 Uh wins best actress at the academy awards for monsters ball side note the only woman of color to have ever one best actress jesus nigh a hundred years the only woman of color who has ever been the best actress the only person who wasn't a white woman who was ever the best actress is halle berry who they get to play this role that we were saying was like the lead the lead it should be it should be i mean supposedly it's supposed to be her and her and wolverine as the two leads in this and she is at least as absent from this movie as the other two, as uh, as Scott and Jean Grey are. Uh, but really even more so because she doesn't talk for the whole first half. Yeah, we don't get, we certainly get like a strong visual sense of who she right. is. But don't get much sense of her personality at all. I mean, I think we get the idea that she's a badass. We love that. Like, we love the fact that Storm is totally badass and seems like, secretly more powerful than either scott or gene gray like yeah as far as like skill in fighting it is like the big moment is when she gets to flex and like bring out the whole 
Yeah. Yeah. She like zaps the weather Toad, control. Yeah, and like gets him good. Mm-hmm. But she really doesn't. Yeah, she doesn't have like a lot to do in this movie other than like come in and save like save people's bacon. She has yeah. the one scene with the senator, which could kind of be good if it was maybe if it was longer, um, where she talks about like sometimes she does hate normal people or maybe she fears them, but that's over pretty quickly. Yeah. I think it's a really interesting scene. I think, I think there's like the interesting, like metatextuality of like, yes, we're talking about the mutants here, but she's also like a black woman talking to a white man about this same thing Mm. of like, uh, and the power structures there. Yeah. Uh, I think there's, structurally there's more to be mined than there is in the writing of that scene yeah. i would say like the dialogue writing yeah yeah there certainly is like a criticism of these movies too that brian singer is like so eloquent and thorough with the queer metaphor but maybe doesn't engage with the material much deeper than that mm. some stuff gets underserved because he's primarily interested mm-hmm. in that metaphor i also just want to give a shout out to Sean Ashmore as Bobby Drake, uh, a character who actually is gay in the comics, but I don't think was at this point. Uh, I think he's really likable. Mm -hmm. I think he's really cute. He doesn't have a lot to do, but it's clear that he was kind of like, he's someone who I think along with what you were talking about with Hugh Jackman, like gets the tone. Yeah. A little bit better than some of the other characters. And his stuff, he's important. He's like more important as like what his relationship to rogue is too it's like he's the one who's like welcoming rogue in and at the end we like see them we know uh that there's the spark of some sort of romance Mm -hmm. is is going on with them uh so this is a segment we're going to do for each of these movies Uh who is your mvp of this movie who's not wolverine (laughs) because wolverine is going to be the best character in most of these movies so who who is it i would have to say magneto Oh yeah, he's excellent. I would I would say like the acting is incredible. He I think he's another one who like nails the tone. Mm. Like he's big and campy, but it like seems like it could be part of his character like that he is like kind of a show off um and that like part of being Magneto and part of like being part of the mutant brotherhood is like loving your powers, like being in your powers and being proud of your powers and like sh- flaunting it to the world and saying like, yeah, like if the rest of the world can't deal with it, then they, then I'll kill them. Like mm. it is like, uh, it's awesome. Uh, how about you? What would you say your MVP other than Wolverine is? Mine actually is a character. I don't think we've talked about much. It's huh? uh Famke Jansen as Jean Grey. Okay. Who I think does great work in this movie. All right, speak to it. And I think that, like, that's a role. I mean, she is probably the main female character of this movie. Mm-hmm. She's defined by her relationship to three different men. Mm-hmm. That is, like, her primary thing. This mm-hmm. movie also doesn't come anywhere close to passing the Bechdel test. No, it does not. I guess, uh, I guess Rogue is the primary female character of this movie. Sure. Um, but I think that she has. Uh, Jean Grey has such like a simmering energy throughout Mm -hmm. all these scenes. I think she plays her relationship with these three men like so differently with each of them, with the professor and Cyclops and Wolverine. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the chemistry between her and Hugh Jackman is really good. Mm -hmm. I think it helps that they're kind of like age appropriate too, which is rare in Hollywood. 
Yeah, I love the use of her powers we get to see. I feel like they do some inventive uses in the end. I feel like the moment where she goes in and takes over uh, Cerebro. Cerebro. Mm-hmm. Okay, I couldn't remember if that was the plane or the thing. Um, when she goes in and like Cyclops is taking her and she does the sacrifice. Like I think that all of that stuff is really cool. I think you are also keeping track of the body count. Yes, so I thought it would be interesting to see... Um, like your mom said about uh, the content in these films, how violent they are, <laughs> um, tracking that, we have in this movie, I counted six deaths. Okay. That includes some dead bodies of guards that we see. So, like, only three important people die in this movie. And that would be Robert Kelly, who, like, gets liquefied um, in, a, in, like, the most and like a pretty gruesome death yeah definitely the most gruesome death in this movie um and then both toad and Sabretooth die in the final battle um toad gets struck by lightning and f- like flies off into the east river and uh Sabretooth gets similarly i think stabbed and stabbed uh, repeatedly sure, and sure. zapped with a blast by uh by cyclops and then falls into a boat and explodes okay any last thoughts anything else that we've neglected we want to talk about x-men 2000 let's uh kitty pride we see for a second she's like a big character in the comics she's Mm -hmm. one of my favorite x-men from the little bit that i have read she is just in the classroom and then she walks through the wall there's also a reference that could be to her earlier of a girl in illinois who walks through walls yeah um Important to note that in the comics, um, the same relationship that sh- that Rogue and Wolverine have in this movie is really the Kitty Pride Logan relationship from the comics. Yeah. Also, the era of comics that I've read, I know this stuff changes all the time, mm-hmm. uh, is that Rogue's main romance is with Gambit and Kitty oh. Pride's main romance was with Iceman before uh, okay. uh, before That's he came out obviously i think he was actually outed by kitty pride wow. in the comics a few years ago kitty pride also in some versions of the comics has a major thing for colossus um uh, who we won't see oh, it. We won't, we'll see briefly. they got married recently okay i Good know colossus them. married someone recently i think it was him and kitty pride that's awesome i love that for her she's one of my favorite characters um, yeah me too Oh, there's a Jaws homage in the scene where Senator Kelly uh, rolls up on the beach, um, which I think is pretty cool. There's a kid in a little yellow uh, floaty raft that looks a lot like the raft that the kid is on in Jaws, and he gets eaten. I love a single tear, and Rogue has a single tear. Oh, we've got uh, Logan saying bub, which is great. It's something he says and, a lot uh, in the comics. And chewing on the cigar all the time. And chewing on the cigar, which are two things from the comics that are good. An interesting thing is, I don't know if you know this, that you can't see him light the cigar and smoke it or it's an automatic R rating. Really? Uh, which is why in a lot of these movies he'll be like puffing on the cigar, but you won't see him light it. Or like sometimes it'll get lit, but then he won't smoke it. You can't have like both of them. That's one of those either things. Either or in a single scene, you in yeah. different scenes, but yeah, weird. That's one of those things I think later on, because there's actually a reference in this. Well, <laughs> actually in a really funny gag, maybe that's how they got away with it. Uh-huh. It's also a thing that you can't have like a guy driving without a seatbelt or it's uh-huh. an automatic R rating. And there's a moment where that happens in this. And then like immediately after he goes through the windshield and dies. Wow. <laughs> because she says, you're not wearing a seatbelt. And he's like, look, you don't need to lecture me. And then they hit Sabretooth. <laughs> And then he dies and regenerates back to life. That's incredible. 
Another thing I would say, another little like snippet for the comics fans is when they're flying and they're um, they're flying out to do the mission, the final mission, and Logan is like making some face about the costume, and oh, yeah. Cyclops says, "What would you prefer, yellow spandex?" So that's for the fans of the comics out there. This is like a big thing. Mm-hmm. We're not going to get away all the way into it now, but this is one of the several things that I think this movie like casts onto other things is that you can't be comics accurate that everyone has to wear like some form of like dark cool street wear yeah there was a comic going around this summer that was really funny that was like a version of that same scene where they're wearing like the iconic yellow uh x-men uniforms mm-hmm. and um they hand one to wolverine and Cyclops says, what did you expect? Black dominatrix leather? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, I think this movie is deeply resonant still today. Mm-hmm. I think there's so much strong metaphorical stuff that we talked about and didn't even fully unpack. Mm-hmm. I do think, however, that's the strongest stuff of the movie is the mm. subtextual stuff. Yeah. I think it makes smart narrative choices, but also kind of like some that doom other superhero movies in trying in its wake for years to come. Uh, but it's just a really interesting microcosm now mm-hmm. of what a movie looked like 20 years ago, two whole decades ago. Yeah. And I'm interested to see where all we go from here. Yeah, me too. So next week we are going to be back. We're going to be talking about a movie that somewhere in the world at this very moment, a man who is 32 years old and is wearing a flannel over a graphic t-shirt is saying is the best superhero movie ever made (laughs) we're going to be talking about x2 x-men united which i'm really excited for man i am very excited for this one it has one of my favorite characters in it a full 30 minutes longer than this film sweet lord jesus (laughs) it is Uh, it's a honker (laughs) yeah so uh i just want to say thank you for listening yeah to our first episode yeah thank you for listening and and they're gonna keep getting better they're gonna have keep having a good time yeah okay okay um have an excellent day (laughs) stay frosted Cinema Bums is a production of DKG Podcasts. It is created and produced by Emma Temple and me, Wade Lawrence Holloman. I also edit and mix the podcast. Our theme music is by Zane Holloman, who you can find on Bandcamp, and our show art is by Autumn Beckner. Our social media is managed by Laura Bennett. If you like what you hear, please tell all your friends and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, the two best ways to spread the word about our work. You can also follow us on Instagram at cinemabums or email us at cinemabumspod at gmail.com. Don't flake on us. We'll be back next week.